The following is a special series of the Darden Ideas to Action podcast, focusing on the power of disruptive innovations. The Disruption, a lively discussion between UVA Darden School of Business professors Yael grushka Kukane and Mike Lennox on cutting-edge technologies and practices that are challenging the status quo. Hello, welcome to our next episode of Good Disruption. I'm here with my co-host, Yael. Yael, what are we going to talk about today? Oh, I am really excited uh, to talk about a topic which I think is going to fundamentally change our lives and for the better. We're going to talk about personalized healthcare or personalized or precision medicine. There's a lot of different terms out there. Maybe we'll get some clarity here today. But basically, we're talking about the field of medicine and how it's becoming more and more tailored to individuals based on their profile, based on their genome, based on their DNA and everything that we can find out uh, to the point where it's really customized to us as individuals, which is hugely fascinating and exciting. I am excited to learn about this topic. I am admittedly if I'm not out of my depth every time we do one of these podcasts, I am really out of my depth on this one here. I, I've always felt like uh, I was someone who leans towards technology, but admittedly healthcare has not been an area of focus of mine. Um, I think it was the one C I got in college was like my uh, organic chemistry class. <laughs> Your so biology, I, yeah, yes, a, yes, yeah. Yes. And so I, I've shied away here, but I, I am intrigued by this topic and, and what it could mean for, for human health outcomes. So can you, can you help us out here and help define what exactly are we talking about here? Yeah, we're talking about a field that basically breaks it down to the point where it can characterize, learn about you as an individual, break down your chromosomes and really get an, a history about you as an individual. You know how you go to the doctor and sometimes they ask you questions about your your parents and your parents' parents and your family history. Well, instead of you having to memorize that or instead of it being very broad definitions, they can really learn about the exact composition of Mike, Mike Lennox, who you are, what what is in your DNA that makes you so unique, which of course we all know that you're special. <laughs> um, but what that means, what that means in terms of how likely you are to um, maybe, I hope not, but maybe be more um, uh, a target to certain diseases. It can help identify which medicines would work on you better and which treatments would help you specifically tackle certain illnesses or certain diseases that are in your future. And so it can really create more of an individualized plan, identifying in our community, in our society, which individuals are more prone to certain health issues and how we can we can really treat them better, be proactive as opposed to reactive. And I imagine a lot of this is being driven by the ubiquity at this point of the ability to map your DNA, like things like 23andMe and the like. Is that So is those that all have emerged from yeah. the same wave, the addition, like everything that we've been talking about in this show, it's about the ability to collect huge amounts of data. It's about storing that data and running more sophisticated algorithms. And now with projects like the Human Genome Project, which collected a vast amount of information, a lot of money is being spent in this area to not only collect, share, and, and you know, process the data, but also come up with sophisticated algorithms to do the prediction that, that is needed. Yeah, and I appreciate that kind of big data aspect. Um, 
uh, with 23andMe. Have you, have you done 23andMe or one I of have these? Not, I, I have. And, you know, it is fascinating to see, you know, first, you know, where my ancestors came from. Did you learn anything you didn't know? I was a little scared because I know I have Scottish roots. Um, I came out like 75, 80% Scottish, which given it's been like 200 years since my, you know, relatives immigrated to the U.S., I, I, we've been very inbred, it sounds like, if we still have such strong Scottish uh, Scottish heritage there. But obviously it goes, you know, far beyond that, you know, things about... Uh, the likelihood that I would go bald. Luckily, I've got a full head of hair, so that that I have the maybe the good genes for hair. <laughs> uh, you got good hair, so you got good genes for hair. Um, uh, and, and then, of course, what we're talking about here is then the ability to then maybe forecast and predict the likelihood of certain you know cancers or diseases that correct, you might have. Correct. Correct. I mean, uh, breast cancer has fundamentally changed the treatment for breast cancer and the ability to detect upfront who carries a gene that is now connected very directly to the chance of getting cancer at a young age. That can create vastly different avenues of treatment and really eliminate that from even becoming a possibility. So you're changing the future by having the information upfront. Mm-hmm. Uh, in general, if you you know we're in a business school, we care about the money here. If you didn't realize, this is a huge field, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, global personalized medicine or precision medicine, the market size is valued, or at least it was valued a couple of years ago, close to $500 billion. Um, it's expected to continue to grow close to $800 billion by 2028. I mean, there's a lot of money being poured into this um, and really a lot of investment both in the uh, healthcare sector, among doctors, but also in the private sector um, all the time. How does this relate to, so, you know, talk about big data, uh, other sources of data that's being collected on you individually about your human health. I think about like I have a smartwatch. I, I you know track when I work out. Um, so now suddenly you know instead of going to the doctor once a year and uh, he or she taking twenty seconds to measure my heart, you know suddenly they have you know vast amounts of data about vital signs for me over the course uh, of the year. Does that? contribute to what we've been talking about here in terms of the, the kind of the DNA personalized medicine? Yeah, I mean, it's a different um, area. To, it's a different type of data, right? It's data related to your daily activities. It has to do with the diet, with the environment in which you live, uh, which you, with your lifestyle and your practices and, and things that you uh, can control more directly. But the combination, obviously, is taking us to brand new territories where we can really identify put together the information about your DNA, your genome, your background, everything that is biologically uh, part of who you are from creation all the way to your habits today. If you put those two things together, you can be proactive and very reactive in the moment when you see things happening. So that, that suggests to me kind of the classic nature versus nurture debates here. And one could imagine, you know, are we going to learn that your health outcomes are really driven by your DNA or are they driven by your behavior? Probably the answer is a little bit of both. But I start to think about some of the implications of that. Um, If we're now, again, being able to screen and predict the likelihood of certain diseases and it becomes maybe a factor in your insurance premiums or a factor in even whether you get hired into certain jobs. Yeah, you can imagine that the extent, this information, which is new to some of us, can be used and abused in various different ways. And that's going to open the door to some of our debate here today, I can see already. But, you know, if I'm told that I have tendencies related to, let's say, weight, what does it do to my desire to be on a diet or not be on a diet or exercise or not exercise? Maybe all of that effort is not 
as worthwhile if I know that there are certain genes that I'm carrying that are going to dictate my future. That's interesting. So you think if someone like says you have the the heavyweight gene, your reaction is not to work out more. It's actually to go the opposite way and say it's, like, hey, this is my DNA. It's, it's not. My, clear. It's my destiny. It's not clear. And so that's yeah. where I think a lot of the the medical field is fascinated by what are the prescriptions that we give these individuals with these certain uh, combinations. How can we help them identify? their path forward, given what we know about them, that maybe a few generations ago, we wouldn't have that information at our fingertips. This is, um, this is probably like a deeply personal question, but I, I'm going to ask it nonetheless, <laughs> is um, if, if you could know about some of these likelihoods, and you being a data scientist, you understand uncertainty and, and you know probability and statistics here, but if you're told, wow, you've got an 80% chance of getting breast cancer or a 10% chance of some rare disease, is, is that information you really want at the end of the day? It's a great question. And I think that um, I've talked to people around me who have received that kind of information. And I think that um, it's personal, as you mentioned, mm. and different individuals have different reactions. I think as a society, again, we're learning how to react to that information and we're cultivating uh, some language around it. It's you know, and TV shows are showcasing subjects who are going through processes like that, and that's helping. Um, but I think by and large, as medicine evolves, there are huge opportunities because we can, if we see a certain chance of an event happening, the questions are, can we prevent them? What is under our control? What can we do to correct yeah. course? What can we do to ease our time and increase our, our, our life expectancy or improve the quality of our living under certain paths and certain conditions? And so then you have a whole new world of investments to cater to those opportunities and to prepare for them. And as we know, when we can control you know, destiny to some degree, see it coming, when we can prepare, we're better off for it. It's interesting. I think as a parent, um, what we, you know, our kids are relatively close in, in age. Uh, what we had to deal with in terms of some of the testing that could be done uh, in the womb that gave you forecasts Correct. for conditions that your children might have. And in some ways, I fear for, for my kids that when they're having children, uh, my kids are teenagers, um, that they're going to have such a vast, uh, more array of predictions and probabilities here. And again, like, what do you do with this information? I mean, at the end of the day, we've talked a lot about the trade-off. Improved predictability doesn't take away the decision-making capability. It empowers us to make decisions hopefully better. More decisions are at our fingertips. So us as humans, our role is still very critical in all of this. The doctors, the physicians that are shepherding the, the patients through and, and the subjects themselves have to make a lot of choices and they just have more information to make it. So in theory, more information is always good. How do we treat it and how do we learn to make those decisions is something that we need to, to develop, a capability that we need to develop. And you're right. I mean, when I was pregnant, uh, some of the genetic testing that gets done, uh, I, grew, you know, I grew up in Israel and a lot of uh, the field there is very sophisticated in terms of exploring specific genetics that have to do with the people who, who are in Israel that are important to test up front because it helps people make better decisions. Interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, you talked about um, the insurance and uh, being rejected based on certain you know, genetic profile. I mean, how do we think about that? How far can that go? I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, uh... Yeah, and I think, you know, as we often do, like to think about some of the business implications and the way uh, that might impact consumers in this case, or, or, or uh, um, patients, if you will. Um, I, I also think about some of the challenges around um, who gets things developed for them and who does not, right? So this has been an issue with drug discovery for, for decades here is that obviously the most lucrative way to develop a drug is one that has a large number of people who are inflected with 
whatever that ailment might be. Uh, so there's a large market for it. As a result, we get these kind of orphan categories that don't receive much attention. As we move towards more personalized medicine and that ability to really target certain drugs and, uh, and, and treatments to specific DNA clusters, do we run the risk again of uh, uh, inequity um, right. where, where some people are going to get the attention uh, and some people aren't? Is that going to be driven by, by wealth? Uh, you know, the wealthy are able to get the customized drugs necessary for them where others are not. Um, these are these are in the back of my mind as well. Yeah, it feels like there might be a potential uh, to disrupt the entire uh, you know ecosystem related to the pharmaceuticals, the drug development process, the physicians who treat the patients in, in the hospitals and the in the clinics, uh, and ultimately in the U.S. that also translates to the insurance market. But in other countries, that's a different infrastructure there that is all bound to be disrupted by some of these forces uh, yeah. that are around us. I mean, it's interesting if, as we think about the last two years. Uh, do you think the conversation around personalized medicine or precision medicine has changed due to the COVID pandemic? This has been a re recurring question in our podcast as well, the impact of the pandemic on some of these disruptions. I would imagine so, right? I mean, I think it, it's, it's it at the very least made people heightened in their awareness of uh, the impacts of infectious disease, but those differential impacts. Um, uh, you know, right now, as we're sitting here, COVID is is kind of raging again. Uh, thankfully, the impacts in terms of hospitalizations and deaths has not been too bad. But it's fascinating in just, the, you know, again, casual conversation with friends and family, how differently we are all reacting to COVID. You know, yeah. some of us have it much more serious reactions than others. You know, some are, for example, losing their taste, which has been, a, you know, a issue with COVID from the very beginning. I, I, I would imagine uh, there are genetic explanations for these differential uh, reactions to, to COVID. Um, and so I think people have a heightened awareness right now about this kind of notion that your your genes are destiny and it can uh, impact you. So yeah, I, th I would imagine that would make people more uh, receptive to this right now. And uh, maybe a fun thing that uh, I don't know if you read, uh, but our great uh, Becky, when she did her research, uh, uh, highlighted a really cool, um, uh, cool or out there idea that kind of again, brings together some of our podcasts um, over time. Uh, there's a company called uh, Genetica, that a, gene, a genomic company that is basically uh, working in the Asia-Pacific region. And recently, they partnered with Oasis Lab. And what they do is it's, it's a Web3 data management company. And really what they do is they tokenize your genome. They really take it and create basically like a genetic, I would say, NFT, like a tokenized version of your genome for you to own. And so you can have more control out of about your personal kind of profile in this virtual world that we've been talking about. Isn't that exciting? Like uh, That's exciting. Just uh, please don't say like, now we're going to make this a cryptocurrency. Like, <laughs> Maybe we're going there. No, Maybe no, we're going no, there. I, no. But I get the idea. Yeah. That this, and this gets to a broader set of questions of kind of health records and digitization yeah. more broadly. Uh, who owns your health data? Um, but it's a really interesting observation that those conversations, which you might argue is separate than what we're discussing today, come to bear very quickly oh, when yes. you have very personalized information like your DNA, like your genome, and you need to share this with others, but it's very private information as we well. We want you to so, own it. Yeah. And I mean, uh, there's been so many struggles for so many generations around electronic records and how can we get these, uh, you know, this information to be collected and stored in a more responsible, organized and efficient manner. And maybe we just step, you know, step over that whole debate and in try, instead of trying to get every, every 
buddy to a place where they have these electronic records, we just go into the you know Web3 and tokenize it. And I know these questions have been raised with companies like 23andMe because they're sitting on this literally treasure trove of data on individuals. Uh, and, you know, hopefully they'll be good stewards of that. But uh, you could you could imagine it being used for nefarious nefarious purposes. Well, I think it's about time that we brought in some expertise to this conversation. Absolutely. How do you feel about that? Well, um, we have an amazing <laughs> guest here, um, Eli uh, Williams, a PhD, an associate professor of pathology, director of the genomics um, and the cytogenomics um, department at UVA. Eli, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me. Eli, we should probably begin with, so what, what have we messed up so far? What, I, I'm sure I've used language incorrectly <laughs> multiple times here uh, and have misunderstood certain concepts. Have we, have, we, have we messed anything up that needs to be corrected so far? No, I don't think so. I think you've hit the, hit the highlights pretty well. It is the, the kind of the, the naming of this field has been a little confusing. I think you hit on that at the top. You know, it's personalized medicine. It's been called precision medicine. Um, and if you want to even drill a little bit deeper, it's been called personalized genomics. Um, to me, really, all those things are very similar. And as you said, just kind of using, you know, a person's unique molecular biomarkers to really um, customize their medical treatment and, and get improved outcomes. That's ultimately the goal of this field. And so the precision, what, where does the word precision come from? What does that allude to in this context? I know I just want to maybe help people get some insight. Yeah, so the precision medicine aspect really, I think, comes mostly from, from cancer treatment, where a person might have a very specific DNA change that's characteristic of their very specific cancer. Um, and what drug companies are really trying to do is target therapies specific for those, those, um, those changes, those precise changes for that cancer to get better outcomes. So that's where that term precision medicine uh, comes from. Okay, on that last point, you, we mentioned before, I mentioned this you know, issue potentially around the economics of, of drug discovery. How do those pharmaceutical companies approach such customized development? Again, I, I think about the idea of you know, large molecule, like you, know, you want to have a large volume of people that you, you sell this to. How, how do the economics work here for uh, that kind of customized drug, uh, drug discovery? Yeah, so I think really the challenge, one of the challenges anyway for drug discovery is finding targets that they can actually uh, drug, right? So in cancer, we're looking at, you know, tens or even hundreds of DNA changes or mutations for that or specific for that cancer. And, and really the challenge is finding which one of those mutations is really just driving the cancer and also something that can be drugged. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's really where a lot of the time and effort is spent. So whereas you would think you would want to market it as broadly as possible. Really, they're just looking for something that's making a difference, something that's that's leading to improved outcomes to, to cancer remission and those kinds of things. That's super helpful. Um, you know, we've asked ourselves this, uh, but we're not as knowledgeable. I'm curious to your take on um, why now? Like, why are we seeing an, an interest in this field? Why is the investment, like, it's all happening. There seems to be a lot of, uh, you know, uh, excitement around investments and private companies emerging and VCs willing to go there. Why now? What is going on in the world around us? What is available to us that didn't exist, uh, you know, 20 years ago? So there's a couple things. I think it's kind of a confluence of, of multiple different factors. I mean, definitely the technology uh, is a big thing that's driving this right now. You, a human genome project in about 2000 kind of revolutionized some of the technology that we use to look at DNA. Um, but at that time, it was really expensive. You know, they spent almost $3 billion on that initial human genome. Uh, and over the last 
couple of decades, the technology has gotten better and better. And now we're down in some cases, you know, as low as almost at that only a thousand dollars per genome. So certainly it's much more accessible and cheap to do. Um, I think another thing that has really led to this is we're starting to understand uh, the genome a lot better. Uh, prior to the Human Genome Project, we really only had deep information about maybe a couple of the genes, a couple of critical genes in our genome. But as we've sequenced more and more people in different populations and in different disease states, we've really started to understand a, a lot more about the genome and exactly what it means and exactly the impact that different mutations might have on a particular person's health or um, you know, other outcomes like that. And so by having the, the technology be a lot cheaper and, and the knowledge be a lot higher, um, people are starting to come up with novel ways um, to leverage their genomic data to improve uh, their health outcomes. Is it that um, we have sufficient data, we just need to do the analysis, or do we, we need to continue to uh, expand the pool? You know, we need more people to, to go get their genome mapped and the like to, to continue to make advances. Yeah, I think um, we need to be a, a couple things. I think the genome needs to be looked at in a lot of different ways. You know, we we think, you know, we have 3 billion, you know, base pairs in our genome, only about, you know, one and a half to 2% of that actually encodes for genes. Uh, we need to figure out a lot of, you know, what the rest of that material um, e even does. And, and the other thing that is very challenging sometimes with genetics is that um, two people can have the same genetic change, but they can have a different, you know, clinical presentation of disease. And is that a result of their other genetic backgrounds, like other mutations or variations that they might have in their genome? Is it a result of the environment or something else that they've been exposed to over time? And those kind of real complex kind of um, data analyses are what we're still kind of waiting for. Really what we've tapped into are the mutations that have a really significant uh, phenotypic effect on an individual. Um, the, the high yield kind of genes. And really what we need to do is kind of figure out all these genes that are having really kind of small or medium sized effects on a person's health. How do we add all those small changes together to have a really clear picture of, of their health and their outcomes? This is fascinating. Um, tell us a little bit, I mean, from your perspective, um, Eli, the how, what is the reaction among the doctors? Like people who go to medical school, are we teaching them anything differently? Uh, is this introduced earlier on? Is this being embraced by the medical um, uh, community? I can imagine that it really requires like a, a digital mindset, like a new mindset for the, for the younger generation of doctors. Yeah, so it's definitely changed healthcare, and it continues to change healthcare, and I think it will do that for the foreseeable future. I think, you know, genomics is starting to touch you know, not just cancer, which is primarily where we think about genetics, certainly pediatrics and rare disease, but really in, in a lot of different situations, it's, it's really starting to be used more commonly for a variety of different clinical purposes. And so, you know, it still is a little bit in the, the wild, wild west phase. We're still really trying to figure out exactly what tests should be ordered for which patient and at what time. I mean, that's really what we want to do is, is, is the right test for the right patient at the right time. But um, we just don't quite have a, you know, strong enough knowledge base to be able to do that, you know, efficiently um, in every situation. And so, um, so it is, it is changing rapidly and there's still a lot of questions and certainly the, you know, our medical education for our doctors uh, is starting to change, but I think um, it's something that we need to accelerate a little bit faster because, 
inevitably the doctors are that are coming into the workforce today, they are going to need to order genetic testing at some point in their career. And probably for some, uh, it's going to be a regular part of their practice. And so um, really ramping up that education and the understanding um, is going to be important for making sure that genomics really has the positive impact that we think it will on population health. You know, I raised the kind of nature versus nurture, you know, classic question here. I, I'd be curious, like, what, what are your thoughts on the, the behavioral side? You know, uh, how does that interface with the work you're doing in, in the genomic side? Yeah, so they, they go hand in hand, but I mean, the nature nurture question is not answered for sure. Um, and I don't <laughs> think we're going to answer it for, for a while. Um, you know, it's, it's challenging. I mean, for diseases like autism, you know, we know they have a really strong genetic component, right? And, and we see it in siblings, in multiple affected siblings in the same families will have the same kind of behavioral uh, phenotype and we can do genetic testing and we can find, you know, genetic variants that are specific to those kids. But what we also see is that, you know, the parents will often have the same thing and the parents don't seem to show the same phenotype. And so what do we make of that? Is that just something you know, the gene is not being expressed or it being expressed differently in those kids, or is it something in the environment that triggered that gene to, to act in a different way? Um, and those are really questions that we don't have great answers to yet. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I can imagine a whole slew of, uh, you know, interesting areas to, to dive into research. Do, do folks in the field care about the whole notion of uh, fairness and accessibility? Is that something that you can allow yourself to, to focus on? Or do you have to continue with the scientific discovery around the, the genomic uh, you know, combination and not worry too much about the accessibility question? No, I think accessibility is, is definitely something that we think about. I mean, genetic testing is expensive um, as in the healthcare you know, setting. It's an expensive test to order. That you're talking thousands of dollars. Um, insurance is often, you know, uh, spotty in terms of its coverage. It's often considered experimental. Um, and, and in some places, you know, we're fortunate here to be at UVA in an academic medical center where they embrace new technology. Um, but in a lot of community practices and those kinds of things, they may not be thinking or may not be ordering these expensive tests for their patients. Uh, and so there's definitely an accessibility uh, issue with genomics. And really what we want is everybody, you know, with um, that needs genetic testing to be able to get genetic testing. But we know that's just not you know, where we are currently. Is, is it a matter of expense only or is it also like expertise in these like regional hospitals and the like? Yeah, I think both, um, Mike. I, I think that. They, they, you know, in some cases, in, in unusual or rare presentations, they might not just be thinking about genetics. They might just be trying to figure out, you know, what can I do for my patient here, not knowing, oh, there might be a new genetic test um, that's that's just out that might give me a little bit more information. Because these genetic tests, I mean, the, the are being are coming on the market very rapidly, and, and the time. Um, you know, it takes to develop a new genetic test is getting shorter and shorter. And so we're seeing really, I think, you know, as was alluded to earlier, an influx or, a, you know, a huge increase in, in the number of genetic tests that could potentially be ordered. And so that expertise is really critical to make sure that one, they know that there's a potential genetic test that might be useful in a certain clinical situation, uh, how to order that genetic test and really what to do with that genetic data when they get it back from the laboratory. Yeah. Is this something, you know, another uh, disruption in healthcare, uh, telemedicine, uh, is that something that can, is, is helping with this potentially? Uh, to, to some extent, I think um, it, 
it gets people in touch with experts that that are able to to help them. But if they're not being referred, you know, effectively, um, then they're still not getting that care. So mm-hmm. it certainly provides some additional accessibility. But you know, ultimately, they need to be talking to the right people and getting the right tests, which is something that um, you know, personalized genomics in and of itself is not really addressing. And, uh, you know, as we talk about issues of accessibility and fairness in terms of access, both in terms of the physicians that are located or in terms of the the, the cost, um, you know, there's a whole other slew of issues that come up when it comes to healthcare uh, related to discrimination and profiling. Uh, again, is there... I mean, you you mentioned, I think, in previous conversations that we've had uh, that there are protection acts, that there are, there's, uh, tell us maybe a little bit about GINA and how that in, comes into play. Yeah, so we in the U.S. anyway, we have uh, some protection that our genetic information cannot be used against. So, so it's the GINA is the Genetic Information uh, Non-Disclosure Act. And, and so what that protects us from is from like, you know, if the insurance company finds out that you have a particular genetic variant that predisposes you for some you know, adult onset disease, they cannot exclude you or change your premiums based on that information, you know, because you can imagine if that protection wasn't there, an insurance might say, oh, this person's going to get Huntington's disease when they're older, that's going to be really expensive for us. So we're going to charge them, you know, thousands of dollars premium um, to protect ourselves from that particular situation. So that those kinds of really broad protections are there. But, you know, in that same example, it doesn't protect us for things like long-term disability insurance or other types of insurance. It's really just for general health care insurance. So there are some protections in place, but I think as you know, more and more genetic information gets out there, um, it, it is going to become a bigger issue and we are going to have to take a more, I think, formalized approach and not just in the U.S., but I think worldwide in order to protect people that are getting uh, genetic testing from that genetic information being used against them. If I understood correctly, so if I get a test done because maybe I had some concern, um, that does not get shared with my insurance company. Is there anything that prevents the insurance company from starting to demand these types of uh, tests before perhaps you know signing you up for, allowing you to sign up for their insurance? No, they can't do that for general health insurance. I mean, they may be able to ask you, you know, if if you're going to get, you know, for their hereditary breast and ovarian cancer example that was earlier, you know, you're seeking approval to get, you know, um, bilateral mastectomy as a preventative measure measure for that hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. The the health insurance can ask for, you know, documentation that you actually you have a genetic change that would predispose you for that specific condition before they approve or reimburse for that, you know, that procedure. But as a you know point of entry into the insurance field, they they can't access, can't ask for that information. That's really interesting because I can imagine that information is incredibly valuable to the health uh, insurers there, yeah, and the ability yeah. to design premiums to match the risk profiles. In many ways, they've always done that, but they've done it on rather crude and granular uh, information like do you smoke and things like that. Yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, one uh, one thing from a business perspective, right? Like uh, we are, after all, in the business school here, and we think about the business implications. Um, there's also always an interesting trade-off between the you know the, the interest of from the private industry, the private labs, the private companies uh, that are looking to do these tests, and uh, the hospitals or the organizations that we view. Uh, um, some of them are private too, but some of them are are, are more uh, you know serving the public. Um, what is the trade-off there? Are there going to be more players that come and are, have an expertise in a certain test and take it away from the labs inside hospitals and inside schools? 
Yeah, it's, a, I mean, the genetic testing, like the business model is a tough model because it's a, um, at least for academic medical centers and small public laboratories, you know, because it, the technology is expensive, uh, it's not well reimbursed, um, but we feel like it's really critical for good patient care. And so we're doing it almost as a lost leader kind of situation, hoping that the insurance companies will will catch up and start paying for this really critical testing at some point in the future. Um, whereas, you know, the private laboratories are in a somewhat different situation. They have investors um, to kind of prop up that that business decision. Um, and they also, you know, they are sharing or selling data in some situation in de-identified ways to pharmaceutical companies or other companies that might be interested in the genetic data so they can uh, develop new drugs or new treatments um, for specific genetic variants. And so that also helps, I think, kind of prop up the business model to some extent um, until really the insurance catches up. Yeah. We, we talk a lot in this podcast about learning curves. I'm just kind of curious on this point about the cost of doing these tests. Obviously, it's come down greatly uh, over the last few decades. Is, is there a continual path forward where perhaps this becomes less of an issue in a, in a decade or, or, or so? In terms of cost? to do Yeah, to do the genetic testing. So it just becomes um, you know so cheap that it, 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 this doesn't become an issue anymore. I, I don't know how far it ultimately comes to, comes down, really. I mean, I think $1,000 is, that was the goal of the Human Genome Project is to get it to a $1,000 genome. Um, and that's pretty much where we are right now. Some labs are certainly doing it for $1,000. Um, it might come down a little bit more, but I think, you know, as we learn more about the, the genome, we're, we're asking more and more questions and we might need more and more data. And so I don't think it really comes down a whole lot more. I mean, certainly it will continue to decrease somewhat. And certainly as we do more and more tests and we can, you know, leverage volumes and those kinds of things that the price will come down somewhat, but it's always going to be a fairly expensive test. I mean, just to kind of put in a little bit of perspective, you know, genomic tests at UVA are, you know, on the order of thousand dollars. Most other routine tests that are in the laboratory are, you know, tens to maybe hundreds of dollars, but it's genomics is like an order of magnitude more expensive than yeah. just about any other test that we'll do in, a, in the healthcare system. Uh, I have two more questions for you, Eli, as we wrap up here. One question is, um, uh, Mike mentioned that he did the the 23andMe. 23andMe. Yeah. Um, but we've seen, you know, th there are so many ads on TV. Um, I do sometimes feel like I'm in an, uh, you know, in Total Recall. Do you remember that movie oh, with Arnold good, Schwarzenegger? Good so um, I, uh, I sometimes feel like that with all these ads for all of these types of uh, companies that are, you know, suggesting that they can tell me everything about my ancestors. How do you feel about that? Is that a good, a welcome kind of... Um, uh, novelty out there, or is that something that you're concerned by? Well, I'm I'm a little concerned by. It. I've also done 23andMe. I, I think it's interesting. I, I you know it gives you some interesting I think conversation starters. But really, I think what people want with that is to be able to take a look. I mean, it's of interest, of course, but they want to be able to take a little bit of control. I think over their health to some extent and, and make meaningful changes. Um, you know, I think awareness, public awareness of genomics, uh, is certainly increasing all the time as a result of those ads. But really, I do have some concerns about many of those um, of those businesses because they're promising things through genomics that maybe we can't really deliver on. Um, so we have this promise of personalized medicine that we're going to be able to, you know, customize your healthcare just for you. You're going to, we're going to improve outcomes um, and we're going to do all this through genomics. And then you have labs popping up and telling you they can tell your biological age, for instance, from your genetics and then tell you how long you're going to live and do these kinds of things that don't really have a lot of real clinical utility or real value 
Um, and so it's it's kind of diluting, I think, the impact of, of personalized medicine from uh, the public perspective a little bit. So I do have some concerns. And and that really is a big concern, honestly, of, of um, you know, some of the regulation discussions that are going on right now around personalized healthcare and personalized genomics is how do we make sure that these laboratories that are advertising are actually delivering, you know, clinically useful uh, tests back to uh, the people that are ordering them? We, we often in our conversations around disruption get to a point where we recognize that the wild, wild west of discovery, the uh, exploration uh, situation where a lot of individuals are, you know, tapping into a certain technology and trying to push it further is good to some point for industries. But then at some point, the regulatory authorities have to kind of come in to 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 exert some some judgment and to, to get some order in place and protect the people. So it's very interesting to see that this keeps on uh, popping up in our conversation. My last question to you, Eli, just to maybe end on a high note is like, you know, from your experience, you've seen this evolve and grow. Like, what is the thing that you're most excited about as it pertains to kind of personalized healthcare? I think there's a lot to be excited about. I, I think, I mean, the cancer treatments um, and, the, and the things they're doing with some of these, um, you know, molecularly targeted drugs have been really excellent. The outcomes have really improved significantly. And so as we continue to develop or I, you know, recognize and, and uh, develop drugs for specific, you know, cancer mutations and outcomes are going to continue to improve. I think that's really exciting. Um, you know, the ability to give families that have children with rare disease answers as to what's going on uh, with their kids uh, through, you know, expanded genome sequencing and those kinds of things. That's been really uh, exciting to see and really impactful um, for families and, and patients um, in, in order to do that. So. I mean, those are kind of some things that are pretty exciting. I mean, I think one thing that's really starting to come down the pipe a lot more um, that is really interesting and kind of exciting is this whole idea of liquid biopsies, where we can use, you know, just a, a blood sample to really get a lot of information about, you know, a lung cancer or a colorectal cancer without having to go in and actually take a biopsy of those cancers and just use the, the DNA that's circulating in your blood uh, that is released by the cancer to, to do the testing um, and to monitor disease and maybe even eventually to, to, um, to diagnose and predict, you know, the onset of cancer even earlier than we do now. So those are, you know, some things that are coming down the pipe that I think are really exciting, but the, the field just continues to mature and, and new applications of genomics are, are really coming out all the time. And so it's, a, it's an exciting field to be in. You know, on that last one, I'm not sure if this is actually even genomics, but I just recently turned 50 and uh, the ability to use color guard over the standard colon uh, cancer test was a, a great pleasure to me uh, yeah. over the alternative. I, is, that, is that genomics, uh, Eli, or is that not? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. I think okay. that's more, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, personalized medicine in the way they're using biomarkers, but I don't think they're using DNA in those cases. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but um, Eli, this has been uh, really, you, I got goosebumps there when you described some of those potential benefits. I think that it's very promising and uh, areas that give a lot of heartache and a lot of um, uh, pain for families in many different stage of lives. And if we can, if we as a society can ease that in some way, shape or form by providing more information, even if it's just information, I think that that uh, is, a, is a really beacon of hope. So thank you for all that you do. And thank you for spending the time with us. Uh, so Mike, having you know discussed this now and for some time, uh, where do you come down? Well, I was going to, I mean, you just kind of gave your answer. So I'm going to make you answer <laughs> good first. Good, good bad disruption, bad disruption <laughs> or no disruption. Yeah. yeah. Just want to put a finer point on it. I, uh, I definitely feel like you know, in medicine, um, it is already heavily regulated, right? So this is a field where I, 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 I believe 
all eyes are constantly monitoring uh, issues that we're worried about, private, privacy issues, fairness issues, equity issues. We're not, we haven't solved the problems for sure, but there are a lot of uh, you know, regulatory um, bodies involved. There is a lot of um, quality assurance along the way. So it's a field that is already has some safeguards that I'm encouraged that developments like this can actually improve our lives and improve the, the, the treatment that we get and improve how, how we, you know, just the amount of information that we have, which I think is great because, you know, I grew up again, I'll give a cultural reference on inner, did you see inner space? Do you remember that movie? I do, I do. So I was thinking about when I was preparing for today, I was thinking about inner space, we, we almost know more about going to the moon than we do about inside our own bodies. So it's amazing to see that we're, we're making big strides to learn more about what goes on inside of us and, and be better at understanding how it all works. So uh, not surprisingly, I, I'm in alignment with you today. Uh, yeah, good, good disruption in my, my viewpoint. I, I really appreciate what you were saying about the regulatory apparatus, because I think you're right. Um, this is you know, fraught in many ways, like we discussed. It is not uh, without some challenges. Um, the promise of improving health outcomes is obviously incredibly attractive. Uh, and, and the hope that we'll, we'll manage those issues. Um, and I, and I think we can. Um, so I, I'm, I'm with you good disruption and, and hopefully we'll continue to see the development of this field, uh, and the, and the successes they've already had, but those continue in, in even greater and bigger ways. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I learned a lot today, as always, from you and from our guests. So thank you, of course, to Eli, our guest. Also, as always, thank you to Gary, our producer, Becky, our lead researcher, and Malk Rolberg for continuing to be the inspiration for so much of the work we do on uh, Good Disruption. We should actually encourage him to have, uh, you know, some of those cultivated burgers in his uh, burger chain. We're going to combine all of our podcasts into one giant podcast. With Mark, yes, By the end of this. Thank you very much, everybody. See you next time. Good Disruption is a podcast from the University of Virginia Darden School of Business.